to have you back. I'm Vernon Mann with more tales from the prehistoric days of television news gathering before mobiles and the internet. It's December 1979. Why don't you join me on the sofa in the bubble bar on the old British Airways Boeing 747, the jumbo jet? I'm drinking champagne with Nicholas and Emma Soames, son and daughter of the last governor of Rhodesia, Lord Soames. They're paying their dad a visit. I'm going out to support our veteran South African correspondent. A weather-beaten Rhodesian farmer is the only other imbiber at the bar, a big whiskey in one hand, a crutch in the other. He's been to Harley Street Doctors after accidentally shooting himself in the foot. I'm feeling very pleased with myself inasmuch as the foreign desk hadn't intended to send me to Rhodesia at all. They wanted me to go back to Iran after the Islamic Revolution to see what would happen next, Sharia law, whatever. I'm frankly sick of the place, having spent many weeks there during the revolution, seen off the Shah and welcomed the Ayatollah Khomeini. As chronicled in episodes 8 and 9, the thought of going back again in midwinter does not appeal. I take a flyer. I say, I think I would be of more use in Rhodesia. We're going to have a couple of reporters out there in the build-up to the election, and you know what it's like when you get a couple of prima donnas on the same story. To my amazement, they agree. An old producer once told me, if you don't push, you don't get. He's right. So I agree to fly out on Boxing Day, thus salvaging at least Christmas Day with the family. My wife sends me off with turkey sandwiches. I share them with the British Airways girls in business class. They're delighted. Even then, airline food was pretty crap. So now I'm up in the bubble bar, hobnobbing with Winston Churchill's grandchildren. Nicholas, an old Etonian, is a stockbroker, but he doesn't talk much about himself. He asks me endless questions about TV news and how it all works. I am three years older than him. He goes on to be a member of Parliament, Government Minister and a right honourable Sir, Lord Soames, just like his father. Emma edits a literary review and Tatler and is editor-at-large with Saga. Where did I go wrong? There are no direct flights to the Rhodesian capital, Salisbury, now called Harare. We have to go via Johannesburg. Nicholas and Emma are escorted to their private chartered plane. They don't offer me a lift. I have a four-hour wait for my connection. What to do? I go outside into the warm sun and hop into a waiting taxi. The driver's an African and says his name is Elvis. I tell him to take me to Soweto, the black African township outside Johannesburg. Elvis is surprised, but happy. Smiling, he says, you sure you want to go to Soweto? Yes, I reply, it's safe enough, isn't it? He says, sure, but you're a white man. White men never come to Soweto, except for trouble. The last big trouble there was in 1976, when his reckoned police killed up to 600 people during a student march protesting an edict that they should be taught in Afrikaans, not English. The police brutality fuels support for the African National Congress and freedom fighters based in neighbouring Mozambique and Zambia, and arouses anti-apartheid protests around the world. Soweto is spread over many, many acres, bordering on old minefields. It was set up in the 1930s when the white government began to separate whites from blacks. The government built hundreds of cheap four-roomed houses for black workers. Many built their own chanties on vacant lots. The Soweto Elvis took me to looked every inch as I expected, like a shanty town. Many hundreds of ramshackle houses, some smarter than others, and the people on the busy streets looked largely cheerful, despite their apparent poverty. 
Elvis tells me there's a great nightclub, the Pelican, where you can hear the best African musicians, like the Movers and the Cannibals, and the resident singer, Mara Lowe. Elvis pulls up outside a brightly painted red bar. Can't remember the name. His uncle runs it. We spend a pleasant hour chatting about this and that over a few beers, with other family members dropping by and joining in. They ask me lots of questions and find out more about what life is like in England than I do about what things are like in Soweto. They reckon a million or more people live there now, and many are worse off than they were then. Nelson Mandela lived in Villacazi Street in Soweto till he was arrested in 62. Archbishop Desmond Tutu lived in the same street and might well have been at home, but I didn't go knocking. They're both Nobel Prize winners. For £56 now, you can get a tour of what they call the world's most prestigious street and buy tatty souvenirs. I say kind farewells to Elvis's family and he drives me back to the airport. I give him a small tip. His face lights up. I don't think he's ever been tipped before. Checking in for my Air Rhodesia flight, I'm asked if I managed to get into town while I was waiting. I say, yeah, I had a great trip into Soweto. What? The white girl splutters. You're not supposed to go there. You're not allowed to go there. She's genuinely appalled. Who took you there, she asks. I tell her. Mr. Man, she says, you're not allowed to take a black driver. It's against the law. Anyway, she says, who'd want to go there, slamming my boarding pass on the counter. I'm a tad anxious about my Air Rhodesia flight to Salisbury. Why? Well, they've lost two passenger planes in the last few years, both destroyed by Soviet-made Strega surface-to-air missiles fired by freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on which side you're on. There are ten survivors of the first crash, but they're mowed down by automatic rifle fire. Everybody else dies too, on both planes. But not to worry. Since then, they've coated the undersides of the aircraft with low radiation paint, which they say the missiles can't detect. So that's all right then. To steady my apprehension, I ask the lounge barman for a large G&T and down it almost in one before I get on the old Vickers Viscount plane. The flight is thankfully uneventful and I pass the time marvelling at the vast red land below, hoping I'll be able to fit in some safari excursions while I'm here. I have to remind myself there is a war going on down there. I'm met by our camera crew, a lively pair of lads enjoying their time away from their Johannesburg base. So from Soweto shacks to the historic five-star Mikos Hotel in Salisbury, soon to be Harare, overlooking Cecil Square, soon to be Unity Square. Presidents, kings, royalty, leading African nationalists, celebrities, all have stayed at the Meekles. And now me. I feel slightly guilty as I'm shown around my room, bigger than my one-bed flat in London, twice the size of just about anything in Soweto. There's a scary, large, white Rhodesian lady in charge of the floor and of the room boys. I have my own boy, whose brief it is, to ensure I'm in need of nothing. He's black, of course, he's not permitted to talk to me and maintains an embarrassed silence when I try to start up a conversation. One of the first duties I have is to pass on a message from the foreign editor to the correspondent. We're having a quiet beer in a corner of the bar and I'm telling him that London wants him to cut down on his scripts. They're too long and his stories often have to be cut back. To my complete amazement, tears start rolling down the weather-beaten cheeks of this massively experienced, award-winning correspondent.
I pretend not to notice and click my fingers for more beers. We never mention it again. His scripts do get shorter, though. We have to ship unprocessed film and recorded commentary to London via Joburg, sealed in a silver can in a bag marked Urgent News Film. We managed to arrange processing eventually at a lab owned by a really nasty German called Otto, who treats his house staff like slaves and constantly moans about everything African. I ask him why he doesn't go back to Germany then. His answer is evasive. We think he has Nazi connections. He's just about the right age to have fought in the war. As ever, in unstable countries, the US dollar is king and everyone is trying to get you to change money with them, including our Nazi and the correspondent, not to mention our freelance cameraman. I finally get to meet his dog Rufus, invoiced for a couple of years now as his sound recordist. Rufus gives me a welcoming lick, thanks maybe for his continued employment. None of them offers as good a rate as I can get from a man in a downtown cafe. Rhodesia declared itself unilaterally independent of the UK in 1965. Ian Smith, as an ardent fan of white minority rule, kicked out black activist leaders. The Brits didn't like that and imposed sanctions. The Africans didn't like it and started a bush war. Nationalists Robert Mugabe and Joshua Nkomo merged their forces to attack from bases mostly in neighbouring Mozambique. I was on a plane once with Nkomo. He had to book two business-class seats to accommodate his rather large frame. It's briefly a token black government headed by Bishop Muzarewa, but at the Lancaster House Conference in London, where Nkomo had a specially made seat, a deal is done for a ceasefire and a supervised election. The elections aren't happening till April and the agreement and ceasefire is only agreed a week before I arrive. Our news coverage is focused on whether it's holding, which necessitates long drives into the bush, to see if freedom fighters are reporting to agreed assembly points. We come across ragged columns of ragtag soldiers who look just as hungry as people in the villages they've allegedly been intimidating. I get a taste of safari life when we have a standoff with a big bull elephant. He blocks our track for an hour or more, bellowing aggressively before stomping off into the bush. It isn't just the freedom fighters who've got to cool off. There's the Rhodesian army, a uniformed pro-government black group called Spear of the People, not to mention the British South African police, all had to calm down. I think it was tough for all of them because nobody really trusted anybody at that stage. Lord Soames, the governor now in charge of Rhodesia, has to manage all this without much help. The correspondent and I dine in the same restaurant as him one night. He looks knackered. I cringe with embarrassment when the correspondent gives a bottle of his South African red to a waiter and asks him to deliver it to Lord Soames' table. I think you'll like it, he shouts to Soames across the almost empty restaurant. It's my personal favourite Stellenbosch. I get it flown in. Lord Soames is visibly uncomfortable as he indicates with a nod acceptance of the gift. I wonder why, as governor, he's dining alone with no security. I guess he can't be seen socially with any of the various factions. As election day draws nearer, I get a second reporter, another camera crew. I manage to keep one lot out of town and one lot in Salisbury and so manage to have a reasonably quiet life. We go to the races on Saturdays, Borrowdale Park, founded in 1892 by Henry Barrow, a pioneer. The meetings are packed. There's more than the usual buzz in the air, with fears that the new black government coming up might well close the racecourse down. 
There's a last-chance saloon feeling about the place. White Rhodesians are leaving by the hundreds, mostly to South Africa, where they can continue their privileged lives. Next morning, my room boy arrives with the tea. He sees my race card on the bedside table and with a nervous glance at the door whispers, Boss, you go races. Yes, I reply. I dream winners, he says softly. I dream all first six on Saturday. I'm interested. Tell you what, I say, if you have another dream for next Saturday, write the names and numbers down and leave them on my table. I'll put a few dollars on for you. He beams and nods. And sure enough, next Saturday, there are the six numbers. I bet ten dollars for him and twenty for me. We've got to get the first six runners in the right order. A truly insane bet. But hey, if it comes up, we're in Beverly Hills Mansions territory. They're off, do a circuit, and as they race past me a couple of furlongs from the post, I clock, they're all in the right order. Wow! I jump up in my seat, knocking over my glass. Yes, yes! Then no, no, as some bloody outsider races up in the last seconds and squeaks the win. They don't pay out for the second six. Still, not bad for a dream. Disturbingly, I never saw the boy again. Maybe someone snitched on him. I would have liked another dream. Most of the other crews in town are South Africans and we get invited to their brise, red meat and beer fests that go long into the night, with much reminiscing about past African conflicts. Don't be phased by the term braai. It's just like any other barbecue, but with bigger steaks. Which brings me to the Meekles Mixed Grill, which makes the Ulster Fry look pathetic. Just listen to this. Two eggs, three rashes of bacon, fried potatoes, tomatoes, two pork chops, two lamb chops, two sausages, kidneys, liver, and a decent-sized steak with toast and an optional bowl of baked beans on the side. Enough said, really. One of our sound recordists, not renowned for his athleticism, hunkers down and eats the mixed grill at least three times a week. We sit at a different breakfast table, can't bear to watch him. There are only so many stories you can do in a situation like this. The office grows weary of African freedom fighters coming in from the bush and weary too of the massive colourful rallies staged by supporters of Mugabe and Nkomo in the big football stadiums. We have to cover them, of course, just in case of incident, but the coverage rarely gets used. By now, Rhodesian TV has begun to process our film, so we no longer require our Nazi services – though I miss sitting in the sun outside his lab, sipping beer and watching locusts scavenge in the grass while waiting for the film to come off. The police are not much in evidence on the streets nowadays. We get bored and design silly, well stupid, competitions like who can drive through the most red lights on the way to the TV station. I sometimes think I had more fun as a producer than correspondent. As a producer, you're a bit of a journalistic Jack the Lad running around making sure everything's going to work, planning the story, organising crews and logistics, finding interviewees, hiring boats and planes, shipping film, splashing a bit of cash here and there to ensure the operation runs smoothly, massaging the correspondent's ego, keeping him on the right track story-wise, making sure the food's okay, preferably, of course, in a restaurant with a couple of stars. As a correspondent, which I was later very proud to be, I had to act, well, more grown-up, Sensible, which is not my natural bent. 
In Salisbury, we're planning to go live on election night with a special programme and various techies and organisers and accountants begin to fly in to recce locations and so forth. The talent, presenters and newscasters are due in a couple of days before voting. The BBC have a homemade armoured vehicle which they sometimes take into the bush in case they get shot at. It's like a metal wagon train with engines replacing the horse. They rarely use it, but take it to the airport to pick up their accountant. They have him rushed from the terminal to the armoured car by two security guys with helmets and flak jackets. They make him lie on the floor and fire a shot every half a mile or so through the slit windows into the bush. There's much alarmist shouting, Stay down! Stay down! They're over there! By the time he gets to the hotel, he's a nervous wreck. I'm more gentle with our accountant. We give him dinner and take him to a nightclub run by a very jolly, very fat lady called Rose, if I remember rightly. She has a novel way of screening customers. She squeezes your balls, and if you pass muster, she lets you in. She never tells you her criteria. We've primed her, of course. I pass the test, as does the cameraman, but the accountant, already stressed by the thought of having his privates squeezed by a stranger, fails He's mortified as Rose laughs and says in front of the crowd, Oh Lord, come back when they've dropped. Being decent chaps, we invite him again the next night and promise him it'll be fine this time. He declines, pleading work pressures. You think that's bad? In Beirut, a news team hire a gunman to burst into their visiting money man's room while he's asleep and spray it with machine gun fire. The accountant's on the next plane out. Not looking too good, but with a great war story to tell when he gets home. Salisbury's filling up with media as the election approaches hundreds of them. The Meekles' big reception area bar is packed with restless journos and camera crews from all over the world, not sure what to do with themselves. I'm sitting with a camera crew sipping coffee, yes, coffee, and we decide to have a bit of fun and suddenly jump to our feet and rush out of the hotel towards a car park, leap into our car and speed off. We do a left and a right, left again, park up in the hotel car park and return to our table in a now almost completely empty reception lounge. Outside there's minor chaos on the streets as the other journalists anxiously try to find us and follow us, fearful they've missed a big story. On election day, election monitors, a band of minor council officials, mostly near retirement, gather uncomfortably in the heat, bald heads reddening by the second, observing polling stations and the hundreds of voters queuing at every one. Back at the Meekles, the white Rhodesian girls at reception have talked themselves into a tearful trauma. Mr Mann, says one, what are they going to do to us? They seriously feared rape and pillage. The election over, next day we film an official garden party and meet the new Prime Minister, Robert Mugabe. I'll say no more about him. So it's all over, but there's one last trip to enjoy. We discover that Zambia is about to reopen its border at Victoria Falls for the first time since 1965, when Ian Smith's white majority government expelled Mugabe and Nkomo. It's got to be done. We convince the office it's a good story. We drive to the falls and have a fabulous weekend at the Victoria Falls Hotel. Sunset booze cruise on the Zambezi and, the excuse for the trip, the story we'd sold to London, we became the first people to drive into Zambia and into Livingston for 15 years. The story never got a run. I'm Vernon Mann. It's been great to have you on the trip. See you soon. Music